0: This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our real-time history videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series, 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45, on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash real-time history podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show. All right, today we've got two guests for double the fun on the podcast. Uh, We are joined by Mackenzie New Walker, who's the director of the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum. And uh, she's also the coordinator of the 2021 Battle of Blair Mountain Centennial Program. And we're also joined by Catherine Moore, who's the president of the museum board and is the author of a forthcoming book, on the mine wars. So thank you uh, to both of you for joining us today. I'm very happy to have you.
1: Thanks for having us. We're excited to be here, excited for the centennial. It's certainly going to be a great year for the museum. Yeah, thank you.
0: Good, good. Then let us start because about half of our audience uh, is international, not from the US. Now, we we do have an episode coming out on the Great War Channel about the Cold Wars. But for the uninitiated, can you give us the quick and dirty version? What are the mine wars slash cold wars slash Battle of Blair Mountain? Uh, just to kind of get us started.
1: Sounds good. Sounds good. Uh, so I think it, at its very core, when you're talking about the mine wars, it's a series of battles and struggles for human and labor rights that, uh, union coal miners and their families fought for, uh, between 1900 and 1921. And so, you know, there's a couple different considerations or things that, that contributed to the mine wars and these struggles. Um, part of it is, you know, what was happening below ground as they were mining coal miners faced some of the the worst working conditions in America. Uh, they were subject to roof falls, uh, methane gas explosions, collapses. It was really like backbreaking work. Um, miners weren't being paid by the hour, but rather, you know, like by the tonnage of coal that they loaded by hand. So it was, it was really, really tough, the conditions. Um, and then above ground, you know, they were they were faced with circumstances that halted them from joining a union and, and you know, declaring their rights. So essentially, miners at the time lived in, in coal company towns where the company owned everything, not just a place where they reported to work. Um, and so, you know, this this sort of system really set up uh, where and And what people would worship, you know, the schools and the education that they would receive, the company doctor, um, companies dictated where families would like buy their groceries and household items, but but not with cash. Um, So the workers weren't being paid in American currency, which is one thing that I think really surprises people. Instead, they were they were were paid with something called scrip. Um, which was only usable at the at the company store. And uh, they were also up against this mine guard system. Companies hired private mine guards, uh, usually Baldwin-Feltz detectives, to do union busting and patrol the towns. Um, these guards were known and are known as gun thugs to the miners. And so we see this, you know, long history of infringement of civil rights.
2: Um, So that's, do you wanna jump in Kat? Yeah, sure. Um, I think that's a really great summary of some of the major complaints that the miners had and that sparked these conflicts. Um, The United Mine Workers of America was formed in 1890 and there were some early preliminary attempts to bring West Virginia's miners into the union in that first decade, but it really didn't, um, the, the first real major attempt was in 1902. Uh, there was a huge anthracite coal strike going on in Pennsylvania and the West Virginia miners who wanted to become a part of the union joined in. Mother Jones, the organizer came for the first time at that time, She began. she begins going up and down the creeks all over Southern West Virginia, trying to bring miners into the union and make them aware of the rights that they have as workers, um, the rights that they wanted to fight for as workers. Uh, And as a response to that organization effort, companies begin to employ and we start to see Baldwin Feltz detectives, uh, operatives for the mine owners, um, begin to police the company towns in order to keep the union out. That strike in 1902 did not go well for West Virginia's miners. Um, It was basically a loss, uh, a very bitter loss. Um, Several black miners were assassinated, many people died, or not many people, but some people died. I'll Take that part out. (laughs) Um, And then in 1912, we see the next real huge flare up of the mine wars in something called the Paint, Paint Creek and Cabin Creek strike. And that's when you started to see the rank and file leadership in these creeks, uh, along these creeks in Southern West Virginia, really start to step up. They lead the miners to victory during that strike. Women participate and help um, a lot. And so they they gain a major win. They're starting to get recognized by the operators um, as an organization that can bargain collectively for their rights. We have a whole era of World War I that impacts all of these, I'm not gonna get into, but then in 1920, um, miners in Mingo County, which was still a non-union mine, um, go on strike. And this brings another series of wars and battles. Martial law is declared. Um, union organizers are rounded up and arrested uh, without access to their um, you know, constitutional right to trial by jury, all of this, um, and then, the miners ally, a local police chief named Sid Hatfield is assassinated in 1921. Um, yeah, sorry, I'm skipping over so much, let's see. Uh,
0: well, it's fine. I mean, we're, we, we'll have time to sort of add in details and we can talk about Sid Hatfield in one of the other questions and so on. So it's fine if you, if you kind of just go for the big overview and, and summarize Blair Mountain or whatever, that's cool too. Yeah.
2: OK, so so we get to 1921, Battle of Blair Mountain. Um, Sid Hatfield has just been murdered. The miners leader, the, the president of the United Miners Mine Workers, District 17, Frank Keeney, presents the miners' demands to the governor one last time in early August. The governor rejects all of these demands. The miners start to mobilize. They begin to meet in a place called Marmette, which is a little town on the Canal River That's the beginning of the land route to Mingo County. Their plan was to cross through Union territory into non-Union territory in Logan County, unionizing it as they go, wiping out their foes as they go. And eventually their goal is to make it to Mingo County to free their Union brothers in the Mingo jail who are being held there under martial law. They didn't get that far. They get stopped at Blair Mountain by this force of um, uh, pro-industry, uh, it's volunteers, it's coal miners that have been conscripted by their employers, it's middle-class citizens, it's state troopers, it's um, National Guard, it's, it's a whole coalition of forces that they're up against. And that's, that's when the battle takes place.
0: And the battle in the end, I hate to uh, sort of give away a spoiler here, but it doesn't quite go the miners' way.
2: Well, I think it's arguable. I mean, I think it's, I think generally people see it as a failure. I see it as um, you know, both sides were uh, both sides surrendered p- peacefully to the to the u s. Army when they came in. Um now, the miners felt many of them were World War One veterans and felt like the troops coming in were their allies and they were going to liberate them and give them their rights back. That didn't quite happen for them for another ten years. Um, but I, I, think, I think if you're just looking at it from like a battle, war, who won, who lost, I think it was kind of a draw. Does that make sense?
0: Sure, sure. I mean, it's, uh, these, this is the beauty of history, right? Different people at different times. You can look at it with slightly different, uh, slightly different angles. Um, so now we kind of have the basics, let's say, down pat couple of decades of struggle. Workers have a difficult situation. It culminates in these violent clashes uh, at Blair Mountain. And that's kind of the, as far as I understand, the last major clash in this phase of things. So that allows us to now get into a bit more detail. And we have a few other questions we'll get to. But before we go off into the into the individual stories and questions more about who's on both sides and what are their motivations, I want to ask you guys about you and how each of you ended up becoming so interested in this topic and working at the museum or presiding over the board of the museum.
2: So yeah, back in 2011, actually, I participated in a 50-mile march that was recreating the march that the miners took back in 1921. And the goal of that march was to save Blair Mountain from being mined by mountaintop removal coal mining, which is a destructive form of mining that would have essentially erased any archeological or historical evidence um, from the battlefield itself. Um, But I had always been fascinated with this history. I grew up here in in West Virginia, um, in Charleston, and I had always kind of sought out information growing up about this. I don't know. I'm just a history nerd. I found it fascinating. Um, and then I eventually came to learn that my own family was involved, but not on the side that I would have chosen for them to be involved in.
0: Aha. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, plot yeah. So
2: Some of my distant ancestors were some of the ones who the miners were rebelling against. And some of the people who were, um, Treating the miners in unfair ways, and so part of my interest in this is a kind of a recovering of this history, in order to, you know, I think tell the tell the true story and the real story um, as a as a little bit of a way of of uh, uh, what's the right word um, redemption, balancing, <laughs> balancing out. out or or like personal <laughs> redemption. I don't know. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah,
1: similar to Cat. Um grew up in a place called Cub Creek in West Virginia, and it's in Wyoming County, uh, in between the McDowell County and Mingo County lines. And I grew up the daughter, granddaughter, and great-granddaughter of union coal miners. So this is a story that, like, I've been familiar with since I was a little girl, like, listening to stories that my papa would recount on the front porch or around the kitchen table. Um... And so that's, you know, I grew up listening to that. And then also in college, I remember writing my history thesis and I wanted to focus on uh, the Battle of Make One or the Make One Massacre and how it's been remembered in recent years and reclaimed. And so that's whenever I first got interested in the Mine Wars Museum. Like it was just a couple years old, old at that point. And I was like, man, what they're doing is, is really, really cool. And so- Right after I graduated, um, I saw that the museum was hiring its first director, uh, thanks to a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. The grant was um, called Creating Humanities Communities. And essentially it was for like both a director for the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum, but also a project coordinator for the Battle of Blair Mountain Centennial, which we're coming up on. So that's kind of how I got roped in been here almost three years and I love it. You know, it's it's pretty unique for a Coalfield kid to get to, you know, stay and work in Southern West Virginia.
2: And I will say that it it definitely felt like Kenzie fell out of the sky like an angel um, when we were looking for our first director because she, she has this personal connection. She was intellectually interested in it and she's also just a stellar human and hard worker, so. Um, that, that came, as Kenzie said, a few years into the founding of the museum. Um, the original group that started the museum, a lot of us did know each other from the 2011 March, but we were also joined by historians, local teachers, uh, UMWA minors. It's, it was a real diverse coalition. I think that's a big part of why we've been successful is we've been able to really engage a lot of different kinds of people around this history because it is, it's so fascinating and unique
0: right so obviously you come by your your interest in mining uh, both of you quite honestly let's say and uh, yeah that sounds like quite a quite a grassroots involvement in every sense of the word i also want to point out because on our on the great war uh, series that we have on youtube a challenge for me as the host is always how to pronounce things right so we we do episodes about i don't know turkey or china or the middle east and i'm um, Dying, trying to figure out how to pronounce things in all these languages, and Kenzie, you have just shown me that I mispronounced the name of a town in an English-speaking country. Uh, mate, one never would have come, never would have thought of it. Anyhow,
1: yeah, no. What did Do you think it was?
0: I went for Madawan because we have we have several similarly named towns in Canada. Uh, and so where I'm from. And so therefore, uh, hopefully our viewers will forgive me. In any case, let us get uh, back back to the Cold Wars. And one question that struck me when we first decided to cover this topic on the Great War and the focus was clearly, you know, West Virginia, I asked myself, you know, why is this going on in West Virginia to this extent it seems like almost a unique situation in the country. Um, so so why is West Virginia kind of this this major flashpoint for this more than perhaps elsewhere?
2: I mean, I, I think I'd wanna put a caveat on that first, which is that I, I think it did reach organized violence elsewhere. Um, American history in fact is is full of examples of labor wars and the West Virginia mine wars are a part of that bigger picture. I think that's something that European folks uh, don't don't necessarily relate to as much. Um, America had a much more brutal history in terms of um, and a much more uh, resistance by private industry to organizing by unions, and so the violence around labor uh, really goes back to you know colonial times. But I do take your point that that you know in the sense of an all out war, you know, um, a, a veritable army that's formed, that, that is a little more unique, um, although not totally unique. Um, so I think some of them, I think you have to understand that, that some of these miners felt that they had no other choices left. Um, they had presented for decades now, um, generations, uh, their grievances to people in public um, uh, public office, you know, their governor, their, their legislature, their local, uh, 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 local officials. Um, and they had gotten basically no response or no, uh, support from them. Uh, there was Multiple times, extensive, long martial laws that were called um, by 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 the military and by by the executive branch that that had put them in prison and, and they had no I mean they didn't even have access to um, you know their their basic right to due process um, I mean that puts someone in a corner so you know not to mention that union organizers who were trying to help them and had been trying to help them for decades. Were continuously being murdered by mine guards in the private mercenaries that the that the coal companies hired. And so uh, the, you know, I think some of these the extremity of of these conditions were a part of it and feeling hemmed in and like they had no other allies but each other um, in some cases. The other piece that I think is somewhat unique, though not totally unique, um, but is certainly, to me, one of the more fascinating parts of this is that here in West Virginia, operators essentially had a private army of their own, which we call the Baldwin-Felts Detective Agency, which was a private organization that would hire out uh, muscle essentially to to, to protect private property and protect against unionization. But those private guards worked in lockstep with local law enforcement in some cases, with state police, um, with with you know the state. And so there was an interlocking power that they were up against. It wasn't just private industry and it wasn't just the US government or the local government. It was both of these, cons- you know, working together. And so that's a lot of power to be up against. Um, and eventually they felt they could not get any change through governance and they went for their guns.
0: Yeah, several thousand of them. I mean, this is this is what stood out to me. Obviously, you know, U.S. labor history is not my my uh, area of specialization, but you know, when I'm seeing figures of x thousand miners armed, you know, moving as a semi cohesive group, I mean, this is like this is something that jumps uh, that jumps to the eye. Um, just uh, you, your response made me think about the about the European side of things, and I think perhaps in a way. A lot of those European labor battles were also quite violent, but uh, significantly earlier. Like we did recently, we for our series on the Franco-Prussian War, we covered the 1848 revolutions across Europe, and there, especially in France, you had a very class-based attempt at uh, at revolution that had a lot of of violence as well. So, let's drill down to who these miners are. Now, we've mentioned a little bit, you mentioned that there were some World War I uh, veterans among them. But uh, yeah, who are the miners? Are they, you know, more or less all similar natives of West Virginia or is it kind of a a more heterogeneous group? And what essentially do they want to achieve? Like what could the mine operators say that would have avoided something like the Battle of Blair Mountain?
2: Well, I think what one thing that labor historians say um, that I've read anyway, that is that um, when strikes are about, when strikes are less about wages and working conditions than they are union recognition itself, they are often more violent than if they are about these other sort of bread and butter issues. Now, the strikes here in West Virginia were always about union recognition this was the this was the 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 you know the forehead smacking problem was that the, the, the <laughs> I the like operators, that I might
0: use that one day.
2: <laughs> the operators would not admit that the union existed even. in fact, they said they were in illegal conspiracy. and so when we talk about like why uh miners would be marching with guns, i think I think the. The stakes get raised when essentially um, their employers are saying they have, uh, this is sort of falling apart, but like, I think think these conflicts were amplified because companies wouldn't recognize the union. As far as who the miners were, you have African-American miners from, most of them from Virginia actually, central Virginia, but also the deep South, Alabama, Georgia, North Carolina, Um, You have immigrants, most of them in this era, we're talking about Eastern and Southern European immigrants, many Italians, Hungarians, um, some Russians. Um, We had an earlier wave of immigration um, from the British Isles where many of our earliest coal miners were from the British Isles. But um, post 1900, we're talking more more about Eastern and Southern Europe. Then you had white mountaineers, you know, so-called native born uh, so-called native white mountaineers, native born people who had shifted over generations from subsistence farming and artisan uh, occupations to wage work in the mines as, as as the industry started to really expand in the late 1800s year. Um, yes, uh, after World War I, yes, many of the miners at Blair Mountain were World War I veterans. Um, and what they wanted was safety. They wanted fair pay, they wanted most of all, freedom to join a union and negotiate and have a voice in their workplace. I think a lot of it is about democratizing the workplace, having a voice in their, uh, in their working lives. And finally, they wanted freedom from molestation by mine guards. They wanted an end to the mine guard system. They wanted to be under civil authority like every other American has a right to be. And so that's what they were seeking. The owners were wealthy investors, uh, wealthy investors from Eastern cities, most of them, as well as Virginia, Ohio. Um, Most of them did not live here. The ones that were really heavily invested, they they did have middlemen who would be the the, the people on the ground, the superintendents, the sort of company officialdom, Um, but they wanted to stay in business and they faced stiff competition from other markets that were closer to the buyers than West Virginia was. So their coal was a little further to market. They had extra costs in terms of transportation. And so their only competitive advantage was in paying workers non-union wages. And they wanted to keep the mines non-union so that they could keep that advantage and you know keep making lots of money.
1: Yeah, I think- Kenzie? <laughs> every, I, I'll just echo everything that Kat said. And one thing that I point out to folks um, In the museum is like as folks were fighting for union recognition, um, you know, one thing that one statistic that strikes me that historian David Corbin points out is that during World War One, folks who were digging coal in West Virginia had a higher proportional death rate than folks who were fighting in World War One across seas, which is extraordinary and striking. And then also just the fact that the the folks who were making the profit did not live in West Virginia. So essentially all of the wealth was extracted out of the state during this time. Um, 90% of Mingo County alone was owned by out of state companies, 90% of the land. And today that number, uh, there's a new Appalachian land study happening today. That number is right around 60%. And so West Virginia still feels these trends that date back to this period.
0: Yeah, I think in in one of the sources we use the term uh, like absentee mine owners or absentee landlords uh, was was um, came up as well. Um, one of our listeners, by the way, had a question that uh, he asked me to ask you, and it's about the story related to the red bandanas that some. Miners' War. Now, I don't know if this is a a bit of a historical legend or if it's well documented. But uh, what is the story about the red bandanas, and then that the the kind of the impact that that has had?
1: So, as we've mentioned, coal companies did not provide miners with their equipment needs underground. So. The miners had to buy their dynamite, they had to buy canaries, uh, lanterns, shovels, fuel, all of these things at the company store, and they were bought with company-issued script. And so the red bandana was essentially a piece of equipment that was available to miners at the company store for purchase. Uh, its intention was to cover up wounds that happened underground, um, And the story is like that this piece of cloth would absorb the miners' blood. And the red shade, the reason why it's red is that it would keep the miners from going into shock if they saw blood. Um, And so at the time of the Battle of Blair Mountain, many miners had already acquired. This piece of equipment. Uh, And so they essentially repurposed it and it would become an identifier during the Battle of Blair Mountain in 1921. Um, It helped them identify who was the miner and who was a mine guard or who was anti-union. And so they wore this as a piece of their uniform and they become known as the Redneck Army. And the term redneck gets popularized. Um, I think it's interesting, like in recent years, we've seen the red bandana reemerge as a symbol of solidarity, which I think is exciting. We saw uh, West Virginia teachers wearing red bandanas uh, during the 2018 and 2019 teacher strikes. And it's also been taken up by various other organizations in West Virginia today. And it's also a touchstone for us at the museum. Um, It's found our way found its way into many of our programs. uh, And we teach and hand out red bandanas to school children as part of our educational programming. So So in 1877,
2: some railroad workers in Martinsburg, West Virginia, uh, were protesting a pay cut and they started shutting down the railroads in that city in Martinsburg. And that sparked what we call the first nationwide strike in American history, It, it spread from coast to coast um, but it actually started in West Virginia, and some of the workers uh, began wearing red bandanas around their necks as a symbol of solidarity during that strike. So even like 50 years before Blair Mountain, the red bandana was starting to become a symbol. Um, and then what you see happen is that redneck, because it is does, has become associated. Um, with with unionization, redneck becomes a slur that mine guards start to say to the unionizing miners. So there's a ton of examples in the historical record of, you know, um, when mine guards are harassing miners, they're calling them GD rednecks and get your redneck, you know what, out of here. And so it became something that was used in a derogatory way.
0: Um, which the union miners. as far as I'm familiar with it the term redneck is still generally derogatory in most usages today at least the ones that I grew up hearing
2: yeah exactly although as Kenzie said that is something that we're trying to change and educate people around like what the real origins of that word is um, and really even by 1921 the miners were um, you know uh, they had they had uh, taken that term and and turned it into something positive and something that they built an identity around. So I think it it cuts both ways. It you know similar to a lot of slurs, it's kind of reappropriated by the people who are um, being targeted and and made into something of empowerment.
0: Right, and symbols and language are you know extremely malleable throughout history. Um, I realized I wanted to ask you a question as well. We talked about the motivation of the miners. And you mentioned, of course, the motivation of the mine operators is obviously revenue and and profit. But what's the motivation of those mine guards and the anti union, I guess you could say, or pro company men, the rank and file who fight at Blair Mountain against the miners? Like, are are they just there because they're getting paid? Or do they think Do they have an ideological approach perhaps for some of the middle-class ones that you mentioned that, you know, unions are a bad thing for society, et cetera. So yeah, maybe, maybe can, you can clear that up because that's something that I found wasn't as well represented in a lot of the literature was maybe, you know, what's, what's motivating all these thousands of guys, mostly guys, I suppose, who are fighting against the minors.
2: When you talk about Okay, so we call the people who the miners were fighting the defenders. That's like the term that's used, the defenders. But within the defenders, there's actually a lot of different pockets of people. And they all are fighting for different motivations, right? So some of them are mine guards with the Baldwin-Feltz agency who have been a part of this war for decades. And this has become a part of like what they fight for. And it does become partly ideological, I think, for them, but it's also partly that some of these guys really were just like, they liked to brawl and they liked to, you know, some of them were convicted murderers. I mean, seriously, they were convicted murder. I mean, like some people were out for the adventure and the sport of warfare. Okay. The, there's also a lot of middle you know middle class professionals in the mingo county logan county area that that participate and you have to remember that in 1919 just a couple years before this the us has gone through this really intense what we call the red scare people are terrified of the bolsheviks people are terrified of the reds and the communists and for a lot of those middle class professionals what they see is that they're defending their homeland from a bunch of insane, you know, communist marauder, outlaws, people who are, uh, you know, they, are the, they see themselves as for law and order, the miners are for chaos and anarchy. And they're trying to keep those forces at bay from their, you know, kingdom that they've established in their sort of middle-class professional lives. You also have some miners whose employers more or less force them to go said, you know, you're going to go up on that mountain or you're not going to come into work tomorrow, that kind of a thing. Um, you had state troopers who had been involved as, you know, you know, they were paid by the state, but, you know, I, I don't know. There's probably a huge range of, of different, you know, feelings and motivations within the, the, that, that rank. So th- those are a few ideas that jump out.
0: Yeah, that's that's what I was wondering about. That's the exact kind of, you know, because it always seems so simple. There are two sides in in any conflict, right? But it never is. Uh, even on the minor side, as as you mentioned, there are different groups and and so on. Now they're united by something, but obviously there's there's always a bit more than meets the eye. And the the sort of deeper we drill down, I think the more diverse the stories become, motivation and otherwise. So I wanted to just kind of throw it open to you and ask you to tell me just a little bit about a couple of the most interesting characters. I mean, we mentioned some in the episode that we did without going into tons of detail, like Mother Jones and Blizzard and Hatfield and Baldwin and Feltz. We don't name any mine operators, but in the episode, but yeah, who are a couple of figures that uh, stick out to you? And uh, if either of you would like, you can also talk about your own ancestors. I think that would be interesting too.
1: Yeah, so I guess I could talk a little bit about my Papa Forrest. So his name was uh, Forrest New. He's my great-grandfather. And unfortunately, like we don't have a lot of detailed stories from him. Like He took a lot of these stories to the grave. Uh, essentially for fear of like retribution and, you know, the miners were tried for treason uh, after the battle of Blair mountain. But I do hear stories of like, you know, he would sing songs about mother Jones and he would uh, always say about the coal companies. We, we'd crawl on our bellies to get them back when engaging in like this guerrilla warfare. And so.
0: Who else have we got in our cast of characters? I
1: think in mate one, you know, one person that we really uplift is Sid Hatfield. Uh, so smiling Sid, he was um, he was the chief of police of Mate One during the nineteen twenty battle of Mate One, essentially, where he engaged in a gunfight against uh, Baldwin Feltz detectives after they finished evicting minors and their families out of their homes um, on May nineteenth. Nineteen twenty, and Sid Hatfield was unique in that he was like this person in a position of power that supported the miners, Um, and he's a direct opposition of someone like Don Chafin, who was the sheriff of Logan County, Uh, and he was very anti-union. He was paid a thirty-three thousand dollars salary by the Logan Coal Association to keep the union out of town, essentially. So Don Chaffin actually helped set up forces at Bloom Mountain to keep the miners from marching through and from declaring a union, which is, when you think about his salary in today's terms, it's pretty insane. Like, that's a lot of money.
0: I was going to say tens of thousands and his salary at that time is a serious, serious amount of money.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I also love the story of, um, Reverend Wilburn. Uh, (laughs) it was, it was a reverend. I think he lived at the foot of Blair cat. You might have to fact check me. He did. Okay. Yeah. He lived at the foot of Blair and he was eating dinner with his family and a bullet came through and, uh, there's this great quote from him. Um, the time has come to, I'll need to look at this, but I think it's, he says, the time has come for me to lay down my Bible and pick up my rifle to fight for my rights or to fight for our rights or something similar to that. And it's just, you know, a preacher in southern West Virginia who's just joining,
2: joining cause is, I think, really cool.
0: Who have you got, Kat?
2: So the book that I'm writing is trying to really um, put a spotlight on many of the women who were involved in these battles, as well as um many of the the immigrants and people of color who were involved uh, in these battles. The first one is this woman named Sarah Rogers Blizzard. And you might recognize that name, Blizzard, because uh, Bill Blizzard is the one who's generally credited as being like the general of the redneck army during the battle. Well, Bill didn't just like come out of thin air (laughs) bell was raised by this like incredibly loyalist staunch union family in southern west virginia and his mother was named sarah rebecca blizzard she uh and her husband timothy who was in the knights of labor before the union even existed Um, They were involved in Union battles very early in this history, and so actually Bill and the entire family, Sarah, Timothy, and the children were kicked out of, uh, evicted from their coal mine um, company-owned house in the 1902 strike, and then they come over to Cabin Creek, Paint Creek, and they get involved with some of the socialist miners there and become leaders of what becomes a movement to bring the Union to that area. Sarah uh was an incredible woman. She took in stray children. That's why they called her mother. They called her Ma. Like she was just Ma. She knew Mother Jones personally. They were good friends. In fact, mine guards would sometimes accuse her of like one example is like a mine guard was like, "You look like Mother Jones. Get out of here!" And she's like, "Mother Jones is my best friend. You can call me Mother Jones all day." And so they were like comrades together in the in the in the trenches. There, um, she and Timothy owned the land where many of the evicted miners, striking miners, come and set up their tent. Com- the Florence Nightingale of the tent colony in some ways too. She's like taking care of 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 people, um, giving them land to live on. Uh, she tells a story, and I've never been able to find it anywhere else in the record, so take that for what it's worth. But it's a pretty amazing story. She tells a story where she eventually got so fed up uh, by by the the actions of the mine guards, which included um, they had this they had this um, steel plate lined train called that they called the bull moose special and it would was used to bring in strike breakers and haul arms and soldiers essentially it was an armored train that would come through the and pass through the tent colonies scare everyone one night they shot up the tent colony and it was terrifying and people like a miner died People were wounded. So she tells, Mob Blizzard tells a story that one day she organized a bunch of women uh, in Cabin Creek to go out to the train tracks and pry up the railroad ties so that the Bull Moose Special could not pass by her home and uh, potentially, you know, um, uh, shoot up the tent colony. So she was this very militant a uh, mountain grown woman uh that I just I love thinking about her. There's beautiful pictures of her actually. Um she's one person who's very well photographed and so you can just get a sense by looking at her eyes they're just sparkling. She's got, you know, this in, intense wisdom and and power. Um, and I just yeah I think she's a wonderful figure. Um, I keep going, but there's one.
1: <laughs> oh okay. I just wanted to add, uh, so Sarah Blizzard is the great-grandmother of President Cecil Roberts, who is president of the UNWA International, which is really interesting. And we have a, a clip of him in the museum where he's giving an interview talking about his memories of, of Sarah Blizzard and her women's resistance section.
2: <laughs> yeah, thank you for reminding me of that. It's it's true. She she kind of launched this generational um you know, a dynasty of union leaders in a way. Um, And yeah, and she was just one woman of many, many, many very brave, very bold and outspoken women who took part in this
0: conflict. All right, yes. Another interesting part of this whole story, which I have to admit I was very unfamiliar with before we started working on the episode. And it's one of the reasons why Flo and I thought it would be great to have on a couple of guests uh, to talk more about it. So I wanna thank both of you very much for joining me today. I really learned a lot and I hope that our listeners did too. I wanna remind our listeners out there that uh, Catherine Moore is, has got a book on the mine wars in the works. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Uh, if you are within a reasonable driving distance, there is also of course, the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum. And if you're interested in the centennial uh, activities surrounding the Battle of Blair Mountain, you can always check out Blair100.com. And I think we will put some relevant links in the description for the podcast. So thank you both uh, so much for joining me today. I really had a good time.
2: Thanks so much for inviting us. Yeah, we hope you all can come and come and see us in in Matewan, West Virginia. Matewan, West Virginia.
0: That's my forehead slapping moment of the episode. No worries.